0: You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.podomatic.com. Hi listeners and welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This episode is the continuation of the last one, which was all about Americanisms. In that episode, I went through a list of American expressions which British people don't like. This is a list published by the BBC of comments made by British people about American expressions that they hate. Yes, hate. It's a pretty strong word uh, to use, but basically British people can be very sensitive about hearing American expressions used in British English. Many of them just don't like it. It infuriates them, causes their blood pressure to rise and their blood to boil... But is it really worth getting so angry about the way British English is influenced by American English? Are the expressions genuinely uh, wrong grammatically? In most cases, I don't think so. Most of the expressions are grammatically okay. They're just examples of standard conventions of American English. And it's quite natural for American English to influence British English. We watch American TV shows, interact with Americans on the internet, and meet more and more American people in our daily lives. Perhaps some Americanisms sound less sophisticated than their British equivalents, but in fact many Americanisms really are efficient bits of language. They're effective tools of communication most of the time. Also, they're just the normal way in which Americans use the language, and essentially American English has just developed differently to the way British English has. When British people don't like hearing other Brits using Americanisms, I think it's pretty small-minded, especially when the criticisms given are things like, it's grammatically wrong, or it makes my blood boil. Um, Is it really grammatically wrong, or are you just arrogantly assuming that British English is the only way? And if Americanisms really do make people that angry, they should just calm down a bit. British people like to think that because we're British, we have the right to be superior about the use of English, as if to say, well, it's our language, so we can decide how it should be used. I think we feel we have a connection to the real source of English heritage, Shakespeare and all that. However, in my experience, most British people don't really have the linguistic knowledge to back up their complaints about American English. So when they complain about Americanisms, they just sound conservative, small-minded or snobbish. So really, when a British person complains about American usage, do they really have a good linguistic point or are they just being a bit judgmental about American English? In this episode, I will continue to go through the list of British people's most hated Americanisms as published by the BBC. I will explain each comment And then give my opinion. I've also got some comments from a language expert called Grammar Man who works at the University of Carolina. The main questions I consider when judging these Americanisms are, are they grammatically correct or not? Are they effective tools for communication? Do they effectively communicate a message? And is the complaint really justified or is it just snobbishness? There is a transcript for pretty much everything I'm saying in this episode. Again, um, you can check it out on the website, which I'm sure you know by now. Luke, um, do I? What is it again? That's it. Teacher Luke at uh, teacherluke.podomatic.com. How could you forget? How could I even forget that? Um, So you can read whatever I'm saying. And if if there are words and phrases that you hear me say and you think, what does that mean? And then I don't explain it. You can check it out. On the transcript um okay so um so where did we stop in the last episode i believe it was comment number 16 so here it is so number 16 i'm good for i'm well that'll do for a start says mike in bridge end in wales so he's complaining about the expression i'm good instead of i'm well that would be for example hi how are you i'm good thanks rather than, hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, or I'm well. To be honest, I don't think we say I'm well when someone says, how are you? How are you doing? I'm well. I don't think people do that even. So already, Mike, you're on shaky ground, because I think we say I'm fine, thanks. And so what's the problem, Mike, from Wales with I'm good? Well, I've heard lots of British people complaining about this before. Uh, Americans do say that. Uh, hey, how are, you, how are you doing, mate? I'm good you know, um, and so lots of British people say that this is, well, first of all, they think it's grammatically incorrect, which is not true, because it is grammatically correct, because if you think about it, good is an adjective, fine, Um, like fine is an adjective, Um, and adjectives are used in this structure. We have, for example, the subject, for example, I, plus uh, the verb be, which in this case is am, and then you can have an adjective. It's just a well-known structure, it is interesting, for example. I'm good. So, grammatically, it's fine. Good is an adjective. You can put an adjective there in the sentence. Um, I think another thing that British people complain about sometimes is that the meaning is a bit ambiguous, as if to say, I'm good, could mean I'm a good person. But to be honest, I don't think that's usually a problem, because in that context, You'd have to try to misunderstand, wouldn't you? If you said to someone, hey, how are you? And they say, well, I'm a, I'm good. And you think, does he mean he's a good person? I don't think that would happen. I think it's normal for you to assume that I'm good means I'm good, I'm not ill, um, I'm sort of healthy, right? Uh, I'm in a good mood, I'm not unhappy. Um, so I'm good. So I can't imagine really how anyone could misunderstand I'm good to mean I'm a good person, unless you know you're in sort of a lord of the rings movie and where it's very important to establish that you're a good person when you meet someone uh before you can kind of get to know them because you know if in the lord of the rings or in star wars most people are just good or bad aren't they so if you meet someone so uh hello stranger how are you don't worry i'm good i'm a good guy uh don't chop my head off with an axe Um, but in the real world, of course, you don't do that. You don't establish whether you're a good person or not at the beginning of a a conversation. So I think you'd have to try to misunderstand I'm good to mean I'm a good person. Um, What does Grammar Man say? Well, he says, there is a difference between good and well. Indeed, the former is an adjective, the latter an adverb. This distinction does elude many Americans, I admit. So he's saying that. Sometimes the difference between the adverb and the adjective um, is not obvious to some Americans. For example, um, how is the project going? It's going good. Now, I can understand that. You'd say it's going well because you need an adverb there. You shouldn't say it's going good. Um, So that is a mistake that Americans make sometimes. But how are you? I'm good, thanks. I think that's all right. He goes on to say, however, adjectives, not adverbs, follow linking verbs. Verbs like to be. Hence, the correct response to how are you is, in fact, I'm good. The Brits are wrong again. Well, I don't think we're all wrong because I think I've got it. But uh, I think Mike from Wales, you don't really have a point. I think I'm good is okay, And it's just more a question of usage. The Americans tend to say that whereas the British would say, I'm fine. So I suppose when Mike hears that, he goes, I can't bear to hear American English being used in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. It's called the United Kingdom because apparently we're united by a king. In fact, actually, it's a queen um, whose family uh, originally come from Germany. So, you know, what what does that say? I don't know. Um, So, right, number 17. And we've got lots of uh, points to go through, so I shouldn't mess around. Let's just um, get through these fairly quickly, shall we? Okay, then. Number 17, bangs for a fringe of the hair. Bangs for a fringe of the hair. That's Philip Hall in Nottingham. Well, um, we don't really say bangs in the UK, but I think in the USA, you know, like a girl has got a fringe that is just above her eyes or maybe just... Uh, the fringe of the hair is just on the eye eyebrows, you know, that kind of look. Someone like Reese Witherspoon tends to have this haircut, which is like a fringe going over the, the eyebrows, okay? And in America, they call that bangs, bangs of hair, right? And in Britain, we don't say that. And in fact, we don't really have a name for the individual bits of hair in a fringe, in America they do they call it bangs. So in fact really we we we're, we're missing a word there aren't we because we don't know um we don't know what else to call it. Um grammar man says I don't know what else to call them. So I think this is just a case of American English having a word that we don't have in British English. So Philip Hall in Nottingham you've learned a word, right? Um you should be happy. Right, moving on to number 18. And this one is uh, from Simon Ball in Worcester. I think we've heard from Simon Ball before, haven't we? Anyway, Simon Ball from Worcester complains, take out rather than take away. So take out rather than take away. So he, he thinks we should say take away, and, and he gets annoyed when he hears people saying take out. So if you go to a restaurant, um, let's see, if you go to a Starbucks um, and you order a coffee, you can either drink the coffee in or you can go out with the coffee a takeaway right you you get a takeaway coffee in the UK and in America it would be a takeout maybe a takeout meal or a takeout coffee or something like that but simon come on what's the problem takeaway fine it's it's clear you take it you take it away from the the place where you bought it you don't eat it there takeout but that that's clear too isn't it simon takeout I'm going to take it out of the restaurant. I'm not going to eat it in. I'm going to take it out. I think that's that's fine. You can't say that takeaway exclusively is the only way to explain that that and that takeout is wrong. I think takeout is fine. It's just another way to say the same thing. Grammar man says, "Well, it's six of one and half a dozen of the other." <sighs> okay. Well, half a dozen means 6. Okay? A dozen means 12 and that's like a sort of traditional uh word which would have been used by like um people who who sold things in shops you'd buy a a dozen eggs for example and it means 12 eggs so six of one and half a dozen of the other just means six of one and six of the other he's basically saying it's just the same way to say two things right six of one half a dozen of the other means that there's no real argument. It's just, a, you know, Americans say take out, Brits say take away, and they're not really that different. Um, number 19. This is from Bob in Edinburgh, and he says, rather positively, I enjoy Americanisms. I suspect even some Americans use them in a tongue-in-cheek manner. Right, what's a tongue-in-cheek manner? What does that mean to use something in a tongue-in-cheek manner? Well, tongue-in-cheek just means when you do it sarcastically or ironically, okay? So if you do something tongue-in-cheek, you do it ironically. So um, let's see, tongue-in-cheek. Okay, for example, if I was to win an award, I might do a kind of tongue-in-cheek speech, which is where I'd say, I'd like to thank... um, everyone for um, voting for me in the awards Uh, i'd like to thank uh, father christmas uh, for all the help that he's given me over the years delivering gifts i don't know how you do it santa i really don't Uh, well done though and you know thanks for keeping the dreams of millions of children alive so that they could then grow up happy uh, happy enough to vote for luke's english podcast in the future so thanks a lot santa Um, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek acceptance speech because I'm not really being serious you do something without being too serious you do it a bit ironically you do it in a tongue-in-cheek manner right so he's saying I enjoy Americanisms I suspect uh, even some Americans use them in a tongue-in-cheek manner so he thinks that some American people use Americanisms as a kind of a joke like a word joke maybe for example that statement was the height of ridiculousity. ridiculosity, ridiculosity. Um, In fact, it's ridiculousness, but um, you do have some nouns that end in-osity, like velocity, virtuosity. Um, So what he's doing is he's taking the word ridiculous and he's putting a different suffix on it. So it's not ridiculousness, but it's ridiculosity. And that's quite funny because if you think about it, the the word ridiculosity is somehow more ridiculous than the word ridiculousness. So, this is an example of creative misuse of language. Grammar Man says, this is a great example of wordplay. So, yeah, maybe some Americanisms are just the American Americans having a bit of fun with the language. Uh, number 20. Uh, this is a half hour instead of half an hour. And this is from EJB in Devon in the UK. So he thinks half an hour should be correct and a half hour is incorrect. But, oh, come on a half hour is pretty clear. Um, And there are other examples of this, like you would have a half pint, Um, a half pint, that's half a glass of beer, right? A half pint. So why can't we have a a half hour? Um, I think it's all right. Grammar man says, I suspect this person has a half brain. (laughs) Oh, grammar man, there you go again. Right. Number 21. Um, This is a heads up. This is, this is from R. Horworth in Marlborough, a heads up. For example, in a business meeting, let's do a heads up on this issue. I've never been sure of the meaning. A heads up. Well, I suppose this means if everyone in your team is working on a project, they're kind of, they've got their heads down. Their, their heads are down and they're working and they're focusing on just their, their one thing. They're not looking at each other. They're not communicating because they've got their heads down. So if you do a heads up on something, I guess it means that everyone looks up. I've just received a text message. Um, If you do a heads up, it means everyone looks up um, and they kind of look at each other and they communicate what's going on. So to do a heads up is like to have a meeting, have a quick meeting just to check what everyone is up to and what the progress of the project is. Let's do a heads up. It could be maybe to a, to bring attention to something. You know, if you bring attention to something, then people will put their heads up. So that is a heads up. I suppose you could say it's not very sophisticated to say. Um, let's see, heads up to make that into a noun. Just those two words into a noun. It's a you know, it's a bit unconventional. Uh, but that's what it means but it, it it is an example of a kind of a cliche that might be used in management speak or business sort of the kind of business english there's a, you find a lot of idiomatic language in business english because somehow they like to uh, sort of be make the la- they might they like to be a bit flexible with the language just to be efficient sometimes um but it can result in slightly annoying or cliche bits of language um <clears throat> Grammar Man says, I've never claimed to understand what happens in business meetings. So he's saying, well, I suppose this is something specific to the business world. And uh, he's not really sure what it means either. Um, OK, shall I check the text message that I got? Let me see. Um, I, I didn't put my phone on silent while I was recording this. Oh, look, it's from my mum. That's nice. And it's, uh, oh, it's about Christmas presents. Because Christmas is coming up, and everyone's asking each other what they want for Christmas. So I've got to tell my mum what uh, I want for Christmas. Oh, what would I like? Um, What would be good as a Christmas present? Um, I mean, obviously, I've got to think... I've got to sort of be a bit sensible. I can't just ask for, like, a helicopter. That would be good. Maybe... Maybe I should scale it down a bit and just go for a a jet pack. Um, That might be a good idea. No, I think I'm going to just ask for a jacket, actually, from my mum. So, mum, if you're listening to this, you can get me a jacket, maybe a leather, like a brown leather jacket. I might might send you a link. My mum listens to this sometimes. In fact, she's not been very well. She's had flu. Um, She's been in bed with flu. So, mum, if you're listening to this, I hope you're feeling better okay I hope that uh you're uh, you're back on your feet again um and we're very much looking for uh looking forward to coming home for Christmas mum looking forward to that right so um actually mum I wonder what you think wonder what you're thinking of this episode because I know that sometimes you you don't like Americanisms maybe I'll have to talk to you about that at christmas uh i might I might even record it so that the listeners to Luke's English podcast can listen in and just learn just like learn loads of english while they're doing it um yes right moving on number 22 train station my teeth are on edge every time i hear it who started it have they been punished that's from chris capewell in queens park in london so he doesn't like the expression train station um i suppose he thinks that railway station is better um, in fact he hates train stations so much that his teeth are on edge every time he hears it if your teeth are on edge it means you're like oh like finding it really difficult it's really horrible to hear so it makes you squirm and it makes you shudder and, and cringe um oh, my teeth are on edge oh i can't stand it um who started saying train station well i don't know is it is it's specifically american maybe but come on what's wrong with train station i mean really it's a station trains that's where you go to get a train Trains stop in them let's call it a train station i don't see the problem railway station as well fine i mean railway is the track that the trains travel on but you know it's it's pretty much the same thing isn't it there's nothing wrong with saying train station uh uh, just in the same way there's nothing wrong with saying railway station it's just another way of saying the same thing so there's no need to punish people for saying train station chris come on man Um, grammar man says have you been punished yet for talking out of turn go and stand in the corner and don't come back until you have a good point to make okay let's um let's take a little uh break from the list now and let's hear from an American reader. So, this is um, this is a comment from Melanie Johnson, and she's a, a, a master's student in applied linguistics here in the UK. So, she's actually from America, but she's living in the UK, and she's studying a master's degree in applied linguistics. So... I'm sure that she's going to have quite a, a balanced view on this subject, uh, You know, being an American, living in the UK, and generally being very educated about linguistics. Let's hear what she says. So she says, The idea that there once existed a pure form of English is simply untrue. The English spoken in the UK today has been influenced by a number of languages, including Dutch, French and German. Speakers from the time of William the Conqueror would not recognise what we speak in British as English. Uh, They would not recognise what we speak in Britain as English. This is because language variation shifts are constantly changing. Five years ago, you might have found it odd if someone asked you to friend them. But today, many of us know this means to add them on Facebook. The increased use of technology, in combination with the rise of a globalised society, means language changes are happening faster than ever, especially in places with highly diverse populations like London. Young people are usually at the vanguard of this, so it's no surprise to find London teenagers increasingly speaking what's been termed multicultural ethnic English. Changes in word use are normal, and not unique to any language, but English does enjoy a privileged status as the world 's lingua franca that began with the British, but has been maintained by the americans it 's difficult to predict how English will evolve, uh, but one certainty is it will so <clears throat> she 's saying something I think we 've probably already made that point that um, you know the influence of Americanisms on British English is all part of the natural way in which language changes over time and you can either understand that and go with it or you get very angry and annoyed uh and complain and uh get, and throw your toys out of the pram. Right, let's move on. Number 23. We're almost halfway through the list and we are 23 minutes into the podcast, so let's go. So, this is from Chris Frack Chris Fackrell in York in the UK. And he says to put a list into alphabetical order. Is to alf- alphabetize it horrid? So he thinks that the verb to alphabetize something is horrible. Um, that means put it in alphabetical order. For example, I, alphabetize, I alphabetized my record collection. Well, I don't know. How is it? Is it really intrinsically horrible to say alphabetize? I mean, it's rather a long, slightly clumsy-sounding word, alphabetize, and. You might say that it's a bit basic to just take the the word alphabet and turn it into a verb, but it's pretty effective, isn't it? You know what that means to alphabetize. Something means to put it into alphabetical order. It's certainly easier to say. Uh, Grammar Man says, no doubt we Americans are notorious for transforming nouns into verbs. If we hadn't introduced this practice, imagine how annoyed you'd always be Imagine how annoyed you'd be always having to say, "I'll add you as a friend on Facebook" instead of "I'll friend you." Okay, I think we get the point. Uh, saying "I'll friend you" is just a much quicker and much easier way of saying, "I will add you as a friend on Facebook." and I suppose the same applies to alphabetize. Right. Uh, number twenty four, people say th- people that say "my bad" after a mistake. I don't know how anything could be as annoying or as lazy as that. That's from Simon Williamson in Lymington, Hampshire in the UK. Uh, my bad. Okay, so for example, if you, let's say you take the wrong bus with your friend and you're riding along and your, bu- and, and your friend says, oh no, we're on the wrong bus, we're going the wrong direction. And you go, oh yeah, sorry, my bad. That's that meaning. That means it was my fault, I did a bad thing. I chose the wrong bus in this case. My bad. Uh, yeah, my bad. Mm, yeah, I suppose it's not really grammatical because you can't say my and then an adjective. You have to say my followed by a noun, don't you? I mean, you might say my bad mistake, but essentially it's my and bad. Or uh, Sorry, it's my and mistake. My and a noun. So not saying my and an adjective is, yeah, it's a bit... It's not really grammatically correct. But still it's clear what it means. It means I did something bad. So Grammar Man says, for a while, I thought the British were actually more sophisticated than us. Then I picked up an issue of the sun, my bad. All right. So not really answering the particular point, but he's saying that um, he thinks my bad is okay and that you can say it. In fact, he then makes fun of the British Saying that he thought we were sophisticated, and then he picked up an issue of the Sun. Well, the Sun is a newspaper in the UK, and I agree with Grandma Man. It's not sophisticated at all. It's uh, deeply unsophisticated, um, very sort of um, sort of small-minded, and it, it, it's the sort of Sun that sells new- It's the sort of newspaper that sells papers by doing stories about celebrities and showing pictures of girls with their boobs out. Um so I don't know, guys, if you're in um if you're in England, pick up a copy of the Sun. It's just a naked girl on page three. Um in fact it's one of the most uh popular newspapers in the country, one of the most best selling newspapers, and they've had a naked girl on page three for years and years and years. It's almost like an institution. But um is that really a serious way to uh you know sort of conduct journalism well no it's not is it so it's not a sophisticated paper Uh, they have ridiculous stories a lot of them not really true they um they get their information in a very dodgy ways Um, and only recently um, there's been a big scandal about how the tabloid papers in this country were kind of um, hacking into people's mobile phones and things like that so i agree the sun is a pretty awful paper Nevertheless, if you read it, it's full of idioms and it's full of phrasal verbs. Um, there's loads of language that you can learn from the sun. But as a piece of journalism, no, it's not very, it's not very sophisticated. Um, right, point 25. This is from Tom Gabbott in Huddersfield in England. And he says, normalcy instead of normality really irritates me normalcy instead of norm- normality. So um, <clears throat> you might say in New York after the hurricane, it took a long time for things to get back to normalcy or for things to get back to normality. Um, well, Grammar Man says these words are in fact different and people should be corrected when confusing them, though I don't think the confusion is particularly American. Are you confused? So he's saying that actually these these two words are separate words and... It's true. A lot of people confuse them, but he doesn't think that's just the Americans. Uh, normalcy and normality. Um, right, okay. I'm going to have to Google this one. Uh, normalcy and norm... Okay, there it is. Normalcy and normality. Okay, so this is a website called Grammarist.com and normalcy versus normality. Normal Normality and normalcy are different spellings of the same word. Okay, So that kind of contradicts what Grammar Man said. Normality is centuries older, though, and many usage authorities consider it the superior form. Nouns ending in CY are usually derived from adjectives ending in T. For example, pregnancy from pregnant, complacency from complacent, hesitancy from hesitant, while adjectives ending in L... Usually take the ITY suffix. Normalcy is unique in flouting this convention. So maybe there is a case uh, here for saying that normal C is kind of wrong and normality is okay. Um, <clears throat> well, we will see. Maybe in the future everyone's going to start saying normalcy. But I doubt it. I think we'll continue to say normality. Normalcy, normality. Normality is longer. It's got four syllables. So maybe normalcy is slightly more efficient word. Uh, Number 26, as an expat living in New Orleans, it is a very long list, but burglarize is currently the word that I most dislike. That's from Simon in New Orleans, but I expect he's a Brit. Um, Okay, burglarize. Well, do you know the word burglary? Um, or to burgle something. Well, a burglary is when someone breaks into a building in order to steal something. So it's a kind of theft. So breaking into a building to steal something is called burglary. And the person who does it is called a burglar. And in British English, the verb is to burgle something, like you burgle a property. Well, hopefully you don't burgle a property, but people do burgle properties sometimes. Um, And um, so... Simon's complaint is that burglarize is uh, an unnecessary verb that we already have burgle but i expect in america they don't really use burgle grammar man says again you should thank us for making a habit of verbing nouns all right okay well done yeah it's well done for verbing nouns but we've already have we already have burgle you don't need burglarize um burglarize it sounds funny to us because we already have the verb burgle so if you add eyes on it, it's like, what? Unnecessarily long. Burglarize. Burglarizationisms. Um, that's a common complaint that Brits have about Americans in their English, is that they unnecessarily lengthen words. You know, burglar- there have been a number of instances of burglarizationism uh, itties uh, over the past few monthizationisms, Um Okay, but burglarized, well, well, I'm not that bothered. I think it's just that we use burgle and the Americans don't. Number 27, this is from John in London. And John says, Oftentimes, just makes me shiver with annoyance. Fortunately, I've noticed, fortunately, I've not noticed it over here yet. Ugh. So it makes him shiver with annoyance. Ugh. Oh, God, so annoying. Calm down, John. It's not that bad. Oftentimes. Well, actually, oftentimes is used in Macbeth by Shakespeare. Banquo, one of the characters in the play, Macbeth, says oftentimes. So it's an example of English that was used over here. The Americans then took it over there. We stopped using it. They continued. And now we just get pissed off about it because we assume it's wrong. So Shakespeare used it, John. You'd know that if you'd read some, hey. Eh? Then again, if you read Shakespeare these days, it's it's seriously difficult to understand. Um, thing is, though, I think oftentimes is pretty clear, isn't it? Oftentimes, it really, it's not necessary though. You can just say often. So, I agree that it, it's it's not a great word, um, but actually, if you say I've, if John, if you say, fortunately, I haven't noticed it over here yet, well. You haven't noticed it because you haven't read any Shakespeare. Uh, In fact, it was over there, you you know, 500 years ago when Shakespeare was knocking around. Um, So, okay. Number 28, eatery. An eatery. Um, This is from Alistair in Maidstone. And he says, eatery, to use a prevalent phrase, oh my God. Um, So an eatery is a, a noun, which is a place where you eat. Okay. Um, Grammar Man says, while you're at the eatery, would you like some fish and some French fries with your wine? Okay. There's another kind of word joke here from uh, Grammar Man. Uh, With your wine. Wine, as we know, is a drink, uh, red wine or white wine. But also wine is another word, spelled w-h-i-n-e and to whine is to complain about things in an annoying way like oh god why do the americans have to use different english uh, that's to whine about something um so he's saying would you like some fish and french fries with your wine um so he's just uh suggesting that english that 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 uh alistair is just whining about um this particular word um, and also there's a kind of a dig here from Grammar Man about fish and chips that um, in America, they don't call them chips. They call them fries or French fries. So he's saying fish and French fries. <laughs> Actually, it's fish and chips. Um, all right. Number 29. This is from Ami in New York. And uh, the comment goes, I'm a Brit living in New York. The one that always gets me is the American need to use the word biweekly when fortnightly would suffice just fine. So the one that always gets me is the American need to use the word biweekly when fortnightly would suffice just fine. Um okay. So fortnight is 2 weeks, okay? In a, I'll see you in a fortnight. It means I'll see you in 2 weeks. Um fortnightly is the adverb. Um and the Americans might say biweekly. Um but, um, okay, I don't think there's really anything that wrong with bi-weekly. Bi, we know it's a prefix which means two, like bicycle, um, bisexual, for example. Um, bi means two. Bi-weekly, I mean, I think it's really clear. A bi-weekly meeting, it means a week meeting that's going to happen every two weeks. Um, and Grammar Man says, the meaning of the former term is more obvious and it's three characters shorter, so he's saying that biweekly is actually more obvious than fortnightly, and I kind of agree uh, and it's three characters shorter, so it's actually a shorter word so he's suggesting that biweekly is better um, judging whether deciding whether a word or you know one word is better than another is really very subjective, and so if the Brits say fortnightly, they prefer it just out of habit just because that's the language that they speak and it's all part of their cultural identity and so it's very just a subjective choice you just know fortnightly because you've heard it since you were a child and so when you hear bi-weekly it just feels wrong feels unnatural but really if you take a look at the language properly it's not really wrong it means something it's not grammatically incorrect it's just different um okay number 30 i hate alternate for alternative I don't like this, as they're two distinct words. Both have distinct meanings, and it's useful to have both. Using alternate for alternative deprives us of a word. That's Catherine in London. And Grammar Man says, you have a point, but I don't think the confusion is particularly American. So he's saying that we all get confused between alternate and alternative, and that's not just an American thing. Uh, Number 31, hike a price. Does that mean people who do that are hikers? No, hikers are ramblers. That's M Holloway from Accrington in England. So to hike a price basically means to raise a price. OK, but we also have a word hike, which means go for a walk in the countryside. Um, And uh, a hiker is a person who goes for the... A person who goes for a walk in the countryside a rambler is the same thing and grammar man says no hikers are backpackers ramblers are wanderers okay so he's saying that basically in in america a backpacker uh they they call hikers backpackers and they call ramblers wanderers so backpackers and wanderers just different you know just two sets of words that mean the same thing right So, in England, we say hikers and ramblers. In America, they say backpackers and wanderers. So, there you go. Deal with it. Number 32, going forward. If I do so, I shall collide with my keyboard. (laughs) That's Rick Allen in Matlock. So, going forward is an expression, again, that you might hear in a business meeting. And it basically means going into the future or moving forward into the future. So, going forward. But it's a cliche. So, people just drop that into a sentence all the time when they're talking about things to do in the future. For example, going forward, I think we need to look carefully at our marketing campaigns, right? Um, Going forward, we need to broaden our product range, for example, okay? So going forward. So I think um, Rick Allen is saying that going forward is confusing because if you go forward, you will collide with your keyboard, You'll actually literally go forwards. But come on, Rick, Go for- going forward is clearly an idiomatic use of the language. And you can't be unaware that English is full of idiomatic expressions, just like most languages are. So going forward doesn't mean literally going forward. Come on. It just means sort of metaphorically going forward. And Grammar Man says, British schools must be in a worse state than American schools if a Brit is allowed to pass English without understanding the difference between figurative and literal language. So figurative language is like sort of metaphorical language. And he's saying, basically, he's surprised that uh, Rick doesn't know the difference between figurative and literal language. Hmm. Right, let's take another break from the list here and um, look at some commentary about the idea of language change and how people feel about unwanted elements in language. This is from an article by Sue Fox. Uh, from the Linguistics Research Digest. And you can see the link on the page. And it goes like this. Kate Burridge, a researcher and professor of linguistics, has taken a look at the attitudes and activities of ordinary people as reflected in letters to newspapers, listener comments on radio, and email responses to her own comments made about language in various broadcasts. She states that linguistic purists tend to make a very clear distinction between what they see as clean and dirty in language. In other words, what is desirable or undesirable? There are two aspects to this distinction. The first is that purists tend to want to retain the language in its perceived traditional form, and they therefore resist language change. And the second is that they want to rid the language of what they consider to be unwanted elements, including foreign influences. Burridge likens linguistic purism to dealing, with tab- uh, to dealing with taboo practices generally. The human struggle to control unruly nature. Some of the examples that Burridge provides are quite alarming. People often get, get very abusive. Um, this is when they feel uh, upset about Unwanted elements in language or language change. People often get very abusive, making aggressive statements about how people who use certain wrong usages should be killed. Some people seem hysterical about language change. One person referred to the rape of the English language as escalating out of control and indulged in by people of all ages. As Burridge notes, these are clearly passionate and confident responses indicating that language matters to a lot of people. Burridge also notes that many, ex- um, Burridge also notes that many extracts that she has examined express concern over the Americanisation of English, especially as it pertains to New Zealand and Australian English, where the topic is hotly debated. She refers to newspaper headlines such as Facing an American Invasion, and to one writer who considers that English is deteriorating into a kind of a abbreviated American juvenile dialect. Why, then, do people hold such strong views about language use? The view held by Burridge, and indeed most linguists, is that such concerns about language uh, such concerns about language use are not usually based on genuine linguistic worries, but are reflections of deeper and more general social concerns. She suggests that the opposition to American English is more to do with linguistic insecurity in the face of a cultural, political and economic superpower, and that somehow American English poses a threat to authentic down-under English, and perhaps to Australian and New Zealand cultural identity. Similarly, links are often made between bad language and bad behaviour and there is often an unjustified idea promoted that if a person has no regard for the nice points of grammar, then that person will probably have no regard for the law. With such deeply embedded attitudes towards language use, it is perhaps no wonder that we find such emotionally charged responses." What, though, are the views of younger people who've grown up with awareness of linguistic variation and change? School children are taught about American. Sorry. School children are taught about standard and non standard uses. And in the media, there is a wide array of regional accents used by presenters and broadcasters. E-communication is also playing a role in promoting colloquial and non-standard language to the point where it may be achieving a new kind of respectability within society. We might think that these new attitudes could signal the end of linguistic purism – But according to a survey conducted by Burridge among first-year university linguistics students, the results revealed that there was still an overwhelming intolerance towards language change, especially when it came to American English influence. Of the 71 students interviewed, 81% uh, expressed concern that the use of American elements was detrimental to Australian English. It seems, then, that language attitudes are very deeply entrenched and that new attitudes and practices will take much longer to change, if they ever will. As Burridge concludes, the definition of dirt might change over the years, but the desire to clean it remains the same. Um, Okay, so I guess making a few points. Uh, One is that people are very, very uh, passionate about their... Feelings regarding language change, particularly when it's from a foreign source like America. And so they get upset about it because um, it somehow goes right to the core of their cultural identity. Uh, And also, it seems that uh, even young people who are kind of um, sort of uh, educated about linguistics, uh, they still don't like the American influence. And so the fact is, these things are very deep and personal um okay moving on number 33 let's get through this list in the in this episode let's keep it in one episode if possible okay um number 33 this is from joseph wall in newark-on-trent in nottinghamshire and joseph says i hate the word deliverable used by management consultants for something that they will deliver instead of a report so we you know we'll be able to send a few deliverables what kind of deliverables can you give me on this? I suppose meaning sort of what what kind of reports can you deliver? Um, Well, Grammar Man says, I will not be held accountable for either the actions or the discourse of corporate America. So again, he's kind of distancing himself away from the business world and saying, he's suggesting, I suppose, that in business people do strange things and they speak in strange ways. So they, uh, in this case, they've turned the word, deliver into a noun and said deliverable. But there we go again, the Americans turning nouns into verbs. They're quite fond of that. Uh, Number 34. This is from Gordon Brown in Coventry. I don't think that's the former Prime Minister of Britain, Gordon Brown. I think it's probably just a coincidence. Maybe it is Gordon Brown. Um, Maybe I should do it in a Gordon Brown voice. Let's try that. I've never ever tried to do a Gordon Brown voice in my life before, but I'm going to do it now. You probably don't know who Gordon Brown is. Uh, is well the fact is he was the prime minister of britain for quite a few years between 2000 and when when did he become prime minister 2007 i think until about 2010 so just about three years he wasn't very popular uh and but anyway this is what his voice sounds like or this is what i think his voice sounds like uh the most annoying no I, i can't do it no, in fact, I've just realised I can't do it. But what I will do is I'll do it in the voice of Sean Connery because it's the closest thing I can do to Gordon Brown, okay? So uh, the most annoying Americanism is uh, a million and a half when it is clearly one and a half million. A million and a half is one million point five, where one and a half million is one million five hundred thousand. That's Gordon Brown in Coventry. That was the crappest uh, Sean Connery voice I've ever done honestly I'm normally much better at that anyway the most annoying Americanism is a million and a half when it's clearly one and a half million a million and a half is one million point five where one and a half million is one million five hundred thousand hmm, okay um well grammar man says you may have a point Uh, maybe you have a point, a million and a half could mean a million and half of one, you know, like a million point five. Um, Okay, fine. A million and a half. But I think we all know what a million and a half is. If you say that, I think so. Um, But maybe there's a point. Maybe you should say one and a half million. Okay. Um, Number 35. And this is uh, Narina in London. And she says, reach out to when the correct word is ask. For example, I will reach out to Kevin and let you know if that timing is convenient. Reach out? Is Kevin stuck in quicksand? Is he teetering on the edge of a cliff? Can't we just ask him, says Narina in London, uh, to reach out to someone instead of to ask someone? Well, Narina, this kind of these kinds of phrasal verbs, they're not just exclusive to American English, are they? I mean, we have plenty of these phrasal verbs in English... Um, it's not just something that the Americans are doing. For example, um, let's see to, um, you know, just to, 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 to go past. In fact, you would just know to go past is a good one. All right. So copy me in on a message. Can you copy me in on that message? Copy me in on the message. Can't you just say, can you copy me in the message? Copy me on the message. Why do you have to say in on the message? I mean there's no real logic in many cases to um, phrasal verbs and the way that they use prepositions um, they just become separate items of lexis so reach out to is okay but i understand that the 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 meaning of it why we why do we say reach out as if someone is like somehow difficult to reach and you reach out to them like stretching your arm out to 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 get in touch with someone um Mm, okay. Well, Grammar Man says that idiom has its uses, but it can be overused. I agree. So to reach out to someone can be useful. Maybe if someone is um, like sort of difficult to contact or they're not likely to get back in touch with you, you reach out, you know, it's difficult to 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 contact them. Maybe you reach out your arm and hope that they will come and, and, and grab it in the same way that you try and make contact with someone and just hope that they... Reciprocate and make contact with you, so you reach out to someone. Maybe um, someone is very angry with you, and you want them to forget. You want them to forgive you. You don't know if they will, but you just kind of reach out to them, and um, you know, really politely plead that they forgive you. Might be the a, a case when it's used, but maybe reach out to is overused, and we should just say ask in many cases. Uh, number thirty-six. Surely the most irritating is you do the math. Math, it's maths in capital letters. Okay, <clears throat> you do the math, so you do the math, it's like you work it out. Okay, so, um, let's see, let me think of an example. You do the math, um, mm-hmm. okay, so let's say you're speculating on something, so you'd say, um, um, something like Kate Middleton is in hospital, and William. Has been and, and William has been talking about buying baby clothes, you do the math. That means um, you you work it out, meaning I think that Kate's pregnant. You do the math, meaning if you look at the evidence, Kate Middleton's in hospital and William is like buying baby clothes. You do the math and work it out. You, you'd work out that, wow, Kate's pregnant. Um, but the, the issue is that in America they say math, for mathematics and we say maths with an s on it for mathematics um okay mathematics math or maths it's a pretty small thing i mean maybe maths is correct because it's plural but it's an abbreviation so you don't always pluralize abbreviations um you know uh, mm, so math i think it's it's all right it's just again just two different ways to say something two different ways to abbreviate mathematics grammar man says really do we have to capitalize all the letters too, or are you trying to compensate for something so that's because michael in his message capitalized the word maths so it's m-a-t-h all in capital letters so he's saying is that necessary or are you trying to compensate for something okay let if you make something a lot bigger you, you may be trying to compensate so maybe if something that you have is small you'll need to make something else big in order to compensate for the fact that you you know you seem to have a lot of s- smallness going on in your life that's difficult to explain all right let me give you other uh, let me give you another example let's say a man um, has a small penis okay let's say a man has a small penis and so, in order to compensate for that, what he does is he goes out and he buys a really big car um, because he feels inadequate. He feels um, somehow uh, not good enough, uh, not big enough, um, and so he buys a big car in order to over in order to compensate for it. So, basically, Grammar Man is suggesting that Michael, by putting maths in big letters is trying to compensate for the fact that he has a small penis so basically grammar man is saying michael Zeely in london you've got a small penis okay next number 37 i hate the fact i now have to order a regular americano whatever happened to a medium-sized coffee says marcus edwards in hearst green in london is it in London? Michael Edwards in Hurst Green in England. Um, now, a regular Americano. Yeah, okay. Well, it's it sounds like rather convoluted language for just a medium coffee or a small coffee. Um, but the fact is that, you know, coffee is a bit complex. There are many different ways to serve it and prepare it. And an Americano is basically a, an espresso with water in it, isn't it? It's like a long coffee or maybe a filter coffee, I think could be that um so grammar man says first we take over your language then we take over your coffee although i hear the antipodeans are making a move on your coffee too um so it's just making fun of of marcus saying we first we take over your language then we take over your coffee but that's quite an interesting point that maybe marcus's uh uh complaint is not necessarily about the language but about the fact that um the culture is changing too and that we now order americano coffee rather than just a black coffee so maybe there's something in that that it's not just a question of language change but general cultural change as well how do people feel about it well they get a bit upset about it don't they because it's all part of their way of life Uh, number 37 my worst horror is expiration as in expiration date whatever happened to expiry said christina in london okay expiration date or expiry date well you know if you buy something let's say you buy a a yogurt from the supermarket and on the top of the yogurt there's a date and that's when you should eat the yogurt by you should eat it before that date so in the uk it's called an expiry date and in america an expiration date and well again two words to mean the same thing but expiry might be better because it's slightly smaller it's quite slightly more efficient Grammar Man says, I'd never considered the latter word. I quite like it, and it's shorter. So there you go. He quite likes expiry. Remember latter and former? When you've got two options, the former is the first one, the latter is the second one, okay? Um, Number 39. My favourite one was where Americans claimed their family were Scotch-Irish. This, of course, is totally inaccurate, as if as even if it were possible, it would be Scots, not Scotch, which, as I pointed out, is a drink. Said James in Somerset. So James gets very upset about the fact that uh, Americans who have like family from Scotland or Ireland call themselves Scotch Irish, and apparently that's not correct because Scotch is a is a kind of whiskey, and that the the correct uh, word is Scots, not Scotch. This is kind of a common thing that people say that Scotch is the adjective for Scottish um, and apparently it's not. Um, But um, I think in America, if you you have like family history from that part of the world and everyone in America who comes from Scotland or or Ireland might call themselves Scotch-Irish, can you not just let them choose the way they talk about their own culture? Um, Grammar Man says I never get between a Celt and his drink So he's saying that uh, You never get between a Celt and, and his drink Because Celtic people Are known for drinking a lot So you should never um, Get between a Never get in the middle Of a, Scot- uh, a Celtic person and their drink Because it, it's just not going to be A happy situation um, Alright, number 40 I am increasingly hearing the phrase That'll learn you that'll learn you that will learn you when the english and more correct version was always that will teach you what a ridiculous phrase says tabitha in london um that'll learn you so that will teach you for example if someone let's say a child is doing something stupid and they fall over and they hurt themselves ah i hurt and i hurts and you go that'll teach you you shouldn't climb on that it's dangerous don't do it that'll teach you So apparently some people say that will learn you. And true, it's not strictly correct. I mean, because learn, you don't, something doesn't learn you. You learn something, right? Something teaches you. Um, um, But I think that will learn you is kind of part of usage in certain American dialects, like maybe in the South. They might say that that will learn you, um, but most people don't say that. A grammar man says no self-respecting American with a high school diploma would ever say that, except in jest. So they would only say it as a joke. Actually, that phraseology may reflect the standard convention in the Appalachian dialect, in which case it would indicate a systematic and therefore regionally appropriate use of the verb. So if, if uh, enough people in that region use it, then that kind of makes it all right, I suppose. It's what Grammar Man is saying. But most people don't say it. It's just something in a particular dialect. Number 41. I really hate the phrase, where's it at? Where is it at? This is not more efficient or informative than where is it? It just sounds grotesque and is immensely irritating. (laughs) Says Adam in London. grammar man says you're absolutely right this is one of the two americanisms listed here actually worthy of your scorn the preposition at the end is unarguably superfluous so superfluous means not necessary um okay so where's it at is not necessary you can just say where is it fine but you'd still hear that it's like cool language yeah the language of the kids i don't know i'm making a fool of myself but where's it at yeah where's the party at Meaning, where is the party? But, I mean, I suppose if you want to sound cool with your friends, if you're a teenager or something... Now, I'm obviously making a fool of myself here because I'm in my 30s. I've forgotten what it was like to be a teenager. But if you are a teenager, you might not want to say to your friends, "Um, OK, everyone, where is the party? You know, you might want to say, where's the party at? Mm. If you're a teenager and you're listening to this, what would you say? You can send your emails to teacher at Hotmail.com or alternatively, just leave a comment below uh, this episode of the podcast and I'd love to hear from you. Oh, yes. Number 42, period instead of full stop from Stuart Oliver in Sunderland. Well, uh, a full stop is the dot at the end of a sentence. It just shows that the sentence is finished. Full stop. OK, but in America, they call that a period. Fine. Two words, same thing. Full stop. In America, they say "period." You know, like you might hear that in movies. Um, Your ass, you're you're off the case. You're off the case, Johnson. Period. Meaning you're not you're you're not the police officer that's going to handle this case, and that's it. Full stop. Okay, grammar man says they're just different terms for the same thing. Okay, uh, number forty three. My pet hate is winningest, used in the context. Michael Schumacher is the winningest driver of all time. I can feel the rage rising, even using it here. That's Gail in Nottingham. So uh, she gets really angry at the expression winningest. Okay, so the word winningest. Well, you know the word to win, obviously, is the verb. You win a contest. Uh, Winning is that, you know, if you say, I'm winning, obviously, that's the present participle. Um, So winning has become kind of a buzzword on the internet. So if you're winning, it means that generally, you're sort of like being cool, or um, doing something well, as opposed to failing. Failing is when you're sort of doing something badly or doing something wrong. Winning is means means you're doing it well, you're having a good having a good time you're cool you're down with your kids yeah uh winning right so winning charlie sheen for example said winning a lot when he was on the internet having a mental breakdown not long ago winning so it just means being successful right um so winningest is now like a new uh superlative adjective from the word winning so it's it, it's just a case of Um, The language being Some people are just playing around with the language Changing it around Just for their own enjoyment Um, Grammar man says If I were living in a country That could never use that term self-referentially If if I was living in a country That could never use that term self-referentially I would hate it too So he's saying that uh, When people say winningist They're doing it as an ironic Self-referential thing They know that they're doing it um, so he's saying that uh, he's, he's criticising Britain, saying that in Britain people can't use uh, a term in a self-referential manner. Well, that's not really true, because British people love to be ironic about the language they use. But basically, uh, Gail in Nottingham, don't get too um, upset about it. It's just people playing around with language. Uh, number 44. My brother now uses the term season. For a TV series, hideous. That's from D Henderson in Edinburgh. Hideous, hideous means absolutely awful, absolutely horrible. Um, So the using the word season for a TV series, hideous. Well, it's not really hideous, is it? Because like a TV series, a TV series is obviously like a a set of a number of shows that are kind of broadcast within a certain period. We call it a series in the UK. Whereas in America, they call them seasons. You know, have you seen the first season of Lost, for example? Um, But I don't see what's wrong with season, really. Because it kind of often these TV series from America, they're quite long. They might last for three months, in which case it's appropriate to call it a season. It's all right. It's not hideous. It's fine. Grammar Man says... A TV series can run for multiple seasons. Do you or your brother not realise that? Number 45, having an issue instead of a problem, says John in Leicester. Um, So an issue or a problem. Well, there is a difference between the word issue and the word problem. First of all, the word problem has a kind of negative feel to it. So what happens is people tend to avoid using the word problem because they don't want to accentuate the negative. They want to keep it positive. So they say, we've got a couple of issues to deal with. It makes it sound more positive. It makes it sound less dramatic. Um, And it's very common at work. We talk about issues rather than problems just because it's more, more positive. So that's really a case of subtle nuance. Subtle means like with very small, detailed differences. And nuance means detailed difference or slight difference so there is a slight difference between saying there's an issue here and there's a problem here um maybe you maybe you have an issue with um uh, the idea of of like choosing to paint something in a positive light uh maybe that seems contrived but really it's okay as a as a piece of use uh, as a as, as usage because um because it's clearly using a nuanced like It's it's expressing something in a slightly more nuanced way, isn't it? What's wrong with that? Grammar Man says, Apparently the Brits have an issue with nuance. Very funny. Number 46. I hear more and more people pronouncing the letter Z as Z. Not happy about it, said Ross in London. Well, basically in America they say Z, and in Britain we say Z. Um, so, uh, although with the rapper jay-z we still call him jay-z we don't call him jay-z because oh. okay it's not the first time that's happened just in case you were falling asleep there was a little jingle just to kind of keep you on your toes and that also suggests to me i've got to hurry this up um because so this is a very long list quite an ambitious episode to I think I can go through the whole list uh, and keep it riveting and keep it fascinatingly entertaining maybe you're falling asleep I don't know maybe if you maybe if you are great you know I hope you're having a lovely dream about Americanisms somehow um, anyway right grammar man says I'm not happy about your criticizing my pronunciation without explaining your own so good point what's why is Z correct and, and Z wrong huh come on Uh, Number 47, to meddle instead of to win a medal. It sets my teeth on edge with a vengeance, said Helen in Martock in Somerset. To meddle instead of to win a medal. Okay, so like, you know, uh, Chris Lewis meddled three times at the Olympics instead of Chris Lewis won a medal three times. Uh, And Grammar Man says, how many times has your soccer team meddled in the past 11 World Cup finals? Okay, All right, grammar man, that's a bit below the belt, isn't it? Anyway, it's football, not soccer, thanks. The sport that you refer to as football hardly involves contact between the ball and the foot. It should be called headbutt or something. And what about the Baseball World Series? Come on, only America takes part. You know, in America, they call American football, they call it football, but they don't really use their feet They throw the ball with their hands and then they like smash each other in the head with their helmets. And in baseball, their big competition is called the Baseball World Series. But it's not, it doesn't, only America takes part in that. So it's a bit arrogant to call it the World Series. So come on, grammar man. If we're going to start um, sort of um, sparring here over sports, I'm going to have to pick you up on that one. Number 48, um, I got it for free is a pet hate. You got it free not for free you don't get something cheap and say you got it for cheap do you said mark jones in plymouth well um i got it for free i got it free okay well i think you'd say i got it for 10 pounds but if you got it for nothing some people might say i got it for free i suppose because on the uh price list you'd see either 10 pounds or Or just the word free. So I got it for £10 or I got it for free. Uh, I suppose grammatically, you don't get something for free. You get it for nothing. You get it free. Okay, fine. But, you know, whatever. I don't mind that bit of um, that kind of um, use of grammar there. It doesn't really bother me that much. But I suppose technically it's not correct. And Grammar Man says, you're right. You can't get grammar lessons for cheap. You can either buy a grammar book for $15 to $50, or you can read my blog for free. Okay, fine. It doesn't really talk about whether buying something for free is correct, but he uses read my blog for free. Yeah. Okay. Number 49, the penultimate point. Turn that off already. Oh, dear, said Darren in Munich. Turn that off already. Turn that off already. Um... So turn that off already, meaning turn that off now. Turn it off immediately. Um, But already, you know, we don't use it with with now, do we? We use it with like present perfect. I've already turned it off. But this is like with the the imperative. Turn it off already. Um, You can't... Grammatically, it doesn't work. You can't say turn that off already. Just turn it off now, turn it off immediately. Okay, and Grammar Man says, you may have a point so he kind of agrees with him, basically. And number 50, the last one, this is from Jonathan in Birmingham. And I'm going to do a Birmingham accent for this one. I could care less instead of I couldn't care less has to be the worst. Opposite meaning of what they're trying to say. So um, I could care less instead of I couldn't care less. Um, yeah, OK. Uh, it it It's actually the opposite of what they're trying to say. So I couldn't care less means I don't care at all. But if you say I could care less, it means I could care less than what I care about now. So Grammar Man says you're without a doubt right. This is the second Americanism worthy of your scorn. As you point out, it means the opposite of what it's intended to mean. Okay, so final words from Grammar Man. We Americanisms appreciate the language you Brits gave us. We only wish you would appreciate the improvements we've made since then. Very good, grammar man. So he's saying that these language changes are improvements. Well, um, you know, some of them are. Some of them might not be. But they're all just part of the way in which English uh, changes. And there are two and, and more than two many more nuances and things in the language. But generally speaking, you may, you may say there are sort of two versions of English, Americanism, American English and British English. You also get things like South African English, Australian English, New Zealand English and, and other types of English. But American English is the most dominant, then also British English too. They're just different. You as a learner of English just have to be aware of the differences. Um, but the main thing I would say is just try and Make sure it stays grammatically correct and make sure it's clear and efficient and functional. Um, That's it, I think, from this episode of the podcast. Um, Look forward to more episodes soon. In fact, uh, I hope to do a follow up episode to this one, which will all be about Britishisms. Those are British bits of language which um, are invading uh, American English. And it's quite interesting to note the differences. So, Um, For example, in the UK, people basically are a bit hostile towards Americanisms. They hate them. They think that they're ugly and wrong and a disgrace. Whereas in America, they look at Britishisms and they see them as being quite cool, quite trendy, quite cute. Um, I suppose it's because British English poses less of a threat to American English. Or maybe it's because Americans are a little bit more open-minded about um, influence on their language. Okay, that's it from this episode. Thank you very, very much for listening. If you managed to listen all the way to the end, then well done. You should just have a cake uh, or a biscuit or something as a way of um, congratulating yourself. Yourself, or just congratulating yourselves or congratulating yourself. Um, Okay, thanks again for listening. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks very much for listening to Luke's English Podcast. Don't forget you can visit teacherluke.podomatic.com for more information. Hold up, what was that?